For our sermon, we will be in Philippians chapter 3. You're welcome to turn there. It's on page 981 in your blue pew Bible, Philippians chapter 3. And we'll, we'll pick up at verse 12. Um, before we do that, if I may, I'd like to draw your attention one more time to the collect of the day. So if you can look at page 5 in your bulletin, I think this will be helpful. This is the collect for the second Sunday of Advent, and it's all about Scripture. And I want you to notice the opening line, Blessed Lord, who caused all holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Just stop there. Philippians is a historical letter. It was written by a real historical person. Paul really lived. Nobody doubts that. It was written to a real people, a real community, a church that lived in Philippi. These things all really happened. But the beginning of the collect is crucial to moving from just being a historian to a Christian. We believe that all Holy Scripture was caused by God. In other words, Paul wrote this, but the beginning of the collect says God caused it. So what that means is the Holy Spirit, through Paul, wrote Philippians so that all of us this morning could be taught by God. So there's a direct connection between God and us as we read Holy Scripture in faith. So let me pray for us as we turn to Holy Scripture. Heavenly Father, as your Spirit did at the beginning in creation, as it did when it inspired your Word, may your Spirit come again and teach us by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1940 and 1941 were perhaps the hardest years in Winston Churchill's life. They were almost certainly the two hardest years that any prime minister of England has ever faced. France had surrendered. London had been bombed. There was the threat of collapse. There was the constant threat of invasion. And the U.S. had not yet agreed to come and help. And in October of 1941, in the midst of all this, Winston Churchill, the prime minister, was asked to go back to his boyhood school and address the students. And so he did. With the events of the past year on everyone's mind, Churchill looked out at the students and he boiled that moment down into one specific lesson and he gave it to them in three memorable words. Reading now from the relevant portion of his speech. You cannot tell from appearances how things will go. Sometimes imaginations make things out far worse than they are. But for everyone, surely, what we have gone through in this period, I am addressing myself to the school, Surely, from this period of ten months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in. Except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never give in. 
It's a message that resonates, doesn't it? There's no honor in being a quitter. I mean, all of us, when the circumstances of life are difficult, don't we want to shine like those people that endure, that persevere, that don't give in? Many of you know people like this. A parent who endured through a hapless and difficult job year after year to support the family. A loved one who endured cancer treatment. A friend who has endured one disappointment after another. And in all these cases, never giving in to self-pity. Never giving in to despair. Friends, endurance is not optional for the Christian life. It's mandatory. Read through the New Testament and you'll see the theme appearing again and again. Christians are never to fully or finally give in. Not to sin, not to fear, not to hopeless despair. It doesn't mean they don't have their ups and downs. It doesn't mean they don't have their scars. But Christian endurance means making it to your dying breath without ever rejecting Jesus. And true Christians, the Bible teaches, persevere. And perseverance is a mark of authentic Christianity. And you see, the thing is, with Christian endurance, there's actually a lot more at stake than the peace of a nation. Paul says, writing to his protege Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with Christ. If we deny Him, He will deny us. Christians are to never give in. Or, as Paul puts it in our passage for today, in two memorable words, Christians must press on. That's the entire message for you today. Press on. Paul brings it up by using himself as an example in verses 12 and 13, opening our passage. He says the following, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind, straining towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, I have one question I would like to take up with you today, and it is this. If you are a Christian, how will you press on? How do we never give in? What will it take through the vicissitudes and the unexpected turns of your life to never fully or never finally give in to doubt, give in to sin, give in to fear, give in to despair. How does the Christian press on? Paul shows us several requirements for pressing on. I see four here. I'll walk us through them. Number one, pressing on requires a little grit. It requires grit. By grit, I mean pluck. I mean strength of character, fortitude, toughness. I mean the ability for a Christian to both absorb hardships and also exert 
effort. And we can see this grit, this type of character come forth almost wherever we're looking at Paul, but especially here in the opening of our passage. The phrase Paul uses, press on, in verses 12 and 13, it, it, it means, it carries the sense of moving decisively in a direction to hasten to something, to run to it, to press on towards it. He uses a little phrase in verse 13 that he's straining forward. We're to, we're to picture a person who is stretching out their hand as far as it will go, pulling and pushing their fingertips out. And that is to be an image of the disposition of Paul. He is one great flexed muscle. Now embedded in this verse, lingering underneath it, is a very important truth about the Christian life. You could break the Christian life into three stages. Um, Conversion, when you're born again, when you become a Christian, that's phase one. Resurrection, when you are fully perfected and you're in the presence of God for eternity, that's phase three. But phase two is everything that happens between your conversion and your resurrection. And so here's the principle underlying this passage. Stage two of Christianity, which all of us are in, is marked by struggle. The image Paul uses is not one with their feet up in a lazy boy. He constantly likens this stage of the Christian life to a race. He compares himself to a boxer or a fighter. And this is because, friends, in this stage, as he says, we're not fully perfected. We're still in these mortal bodies. We're still in worlds filled with sin. We still have temptations. We still have weaknesses. This is why he says so clearly in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or am already perfect. He means I haven't been raised from the dead. I don't have full knowledge of Christ. I don't have full victory over sin. So if, if you've ever heard a Christian teaching that if you just go to the right denomination or you pray the right prayer, you can reach Christian perfection in this life, never tempted, perfected. Philippians 3.12 is a bulldozer running over that. Paul the apostle himself is saying, and he says it again twice, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So in this stage two, the middle part of the Christian life, we will have hardships. And this is why the first mark of pressing on or requirement is grit. The ability to absorb difficulty, to not be shocked when life is hard, and the ability to exert effort because Christianity takes work. So let me just show you how this works in Paul's life. First, how does Paul absorb hardship? Well, Paul has actually taken a lot of blows. Paul has experienced Christians behaving badly. Just read 1 Corinthians. He knows what that is like. Paul has experienced Christians who turned out to be charlatans or fakes. In 2 Timothy, he refers to a man named Demas, who he worked with. He said, Demas has abandoned me because he's in love with the world. He knows what that's like. Paul knows what it's like to be rejected by his kinsmen because of his faith. Paul knows what it's like to hear the call of God and say yes to Jesus, only to be led on a path that is riddled with shipwreck, hunger, loneliness, sleeplessness, humiliation, imprisonment, and possible execution. 
Don't you think Paul has every right to deconvert and deconstruct and dechurch? I mean, isn't this what we do today when things are hard? And yet in none of these things does Paul find reason to become an apostate. And this is the man who stands in front of us by the Holy Spirit and says to all of you, press on, press on. So I wonder, asking all of us now, how are we at dealing with hard? I mean, at the first sight of pain, do we question God's goodness? When we have to wait on the Lord, does it tempt us to walk away from the Lord? You know, we live in a culture right now that prizes immediate gratification and builds safe zones for students who get offended by a teacher. There are many good things that our culture may be producing, but I don't think toughness and grit is anywhere on the list. And I'm a product of my time. Friends, to follow Christ, we need to have at least a little grit. But it's not just absorbing a blow that grit represents. It's also exerting energy. It's a type of discipline. Remember how hard Paul works at being a Christian. He's saved by grace, but he works at his salvation with fear and trembling. He's constant in prayer. He's steadfast in gratitude. He's immersed in God's Word. Paul has even worked at the discipline, which he refers to in Galatians 2.10, of never forgetting about the poor. So what, what do you do to be a Christian? I know if you're a Christian, you were saved by grace, but what, like, what do you do? If someone who was a non-Christian said to you, were you a Christian yesterday, December 9th, 2023? You said, yeah. And they said, so what did you do to live Christianly? Like, what, what did you have to do? What work did you put in? What would you say? Or how about tomorrow? What will you do to live Christianly tomorrow? This is the first thing that we see when we look at Paul saying press on is that we simply have to own the fact that yes, we're saved by grace, but following Christ requires having at least a little bit of grit. But pressing on and grit are not just about sort of like a generic toughness that doesn't give in to pain. That can almost be self-serving, like you're too proud to look like a quitter, so no matter what the instance is, you keep going hard. That's not mainly what it is. It's toughness in that regard. But more than not giving in, pressing on requires having something you are striving toward, something you want, because happiness is a far greater motivator. So this moves us to our second point. We need a little bit of grit, and secondly, we need a compelling goal. Angela Duckworth, um, she's a professor now up in Philadelphia, but before that she taught math in New York City public schools. And um, she writes about this in a book she has. And when she was teaching math, she was surprised to notice that a lot of her brightest students didn't perform the best. And she wondered why this was. So she set out, being the researcher that she was, she set out to study what is the character trait that marks success in any field. And do you know what she came up with? She wrote a book about it. Grit. It takes grit. But when you listen to it, the name of her book is Grit, the Power of Passion and Perseverance. But if you listen to Angela talk about her research, what's interesting is she notices that it's not enough. Grit is not simply the fact that a student can bear up doing a hard homework assignment. 
She said, grit is when that student doesn't just persevere, but has a passion they are living for. Something in front of them where they can connect the dots and say, this is, I'm pressing on for that. And this is exactly what Paul says as he moves on in verse 14. Notice he says, I press on toward the goal. So he's pressing on towards something, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's drawing from athletic imagery that his first readers would have immediately had in view. It was the image where in ancient Olympic games, they would set up a post at the end of a long race, a tall post. This is called a goal or a target. And the runners then, that post would, would help them look up. They know where they were headed and it would give them motivation thinking, I'm almost there. When I get there, I get the prize. And it also would help them focus, right? They, they, they know they weren't veering off off course. So before we look at what Paul's goal is, I just want to make sure we're clear at the power of having a goal in your life. Having a goal gives you motivation and it gives you focus. Even more powerful than a resolve to not quit is a desire to be happy. We will only press on if we have in front of us something that is worth fighting for. And it gives us focus because when we have a goal, it helps us know what not to waste time doing, which is why Paul says there in verse 13, forgetting what lies behind. You picture someone ripping weights off of them. I don't have to worry about those old goals I used to have. I have a better one. So what exactly is Paul's goal or his prize? How does it motivate him and help him focus? And how does this relate to, to our call to press on? Well, Paul's goal stated in a single word is Christ. And what, what that means is essentially two things. Paul's goal in life boils down to this. One, he wants to honor Christ by serving him, obeying him, living for him. He wants to honor Christ. Two, he wants to enjoy Christ by growing deeper in his relationship with him and one day being raised from the dead to be in perfect eternal fellowship with him. But it all centers around Christ. That's what Paul is running towards. And he began to bring this up back in last week's passage. Picking up in verse 8 of chapter 3, we heard him last week, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul had been won by Christ. Christ was his sole aim. Paul had been encountered by Christ on the Damascus Road. He had heard Christ speak his name, Paul, Paul, and now he lived under the irrevocable call of Christ on his life. Christ was the sun in his universe around which everything else orbited. Now, think about how this would give motivation to Paul. Um, if you can think back to being in school, some of you that's a painful memory, some of you it's a good memory, but, but there's seasons in school, maybe high school or college, where um, you may be a student who has no idea what you want to do with your life. And so you're like, why am, I, why am I doing chemistry? Why am I doing AP European history? I don't know. And then there's a student next to you, and she knows exactly what she wants to do she's going to go to med school. 
And that's why she's so motivated. Not only that, in college it helps her focus. She knows what classes to take, why she's taking them. So everything she does is connected to that goal and it motivates her. This is what's happened to Paul. Because Paul's motivation is honoring Christ, any and every circumstance is a stage upon which he can walk onto and perform an honoring of Jesus. If he's brought low, he can honor Jesus in suffering. If he's brought high, he can honor Jesus in thanks. But suddenly the whole world is a theater where Paul can passionately pursue his goal. He's motivated. I will be that man that is for the Lord in whatever comes today. And he presses on. It also helps him focus. It helps Paul know what to see when he's looking at a circumstance. He can see the point of it. Do you know that what you aim at affects what you see? So two men are walked up to a huge mountain. They've never seen it before. One is an avid hiker. One is an avid hunter. They have 20 minutes to look at the mountain. They turn around and you ask them to tell you what they saw. The hiker says, well, that's easy. I saw that perfect spot to build a trailhead, to build the trailhead down over there at the bottom of the mountain. And the hiker says, I saw the billy goat way up on the top, on the rock. They looked at the same mountain. They saw different things. Why? Because they were trained to aim at different things. So when you look at circumstances in your life, what you're aiming at in life is going to affect how you interpret and see them. So, for example, with Paul. Paul looks at a great mountain of suffering in front of him. The regular person would see despair. He sees fellowship with Jesus. He says this again and again. I have fellowship in his sufferings. He just said it in Philippians 3 verse 10. Paul has somehow understood that his whole life is an opportunity to go deeper in relationship with Jesus and that the more he suffers, the more he gets to know the man of sorrow. Paul faces temptation, the great mountain of it. What is it? It's an opportunity to flee to Christ. That's what it is. That's all it is. Paul faces confusion. How many of you deal with confusion? You don't know what's going on in your life. You don't know where to go, what decisions to make. Paul sees confusion. He sees it as an opportunity to trust. This is why Paul can say in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love God because he's aiming at Christ and therefore he's starting to connect the dots little by little to the point of things in his pursuit of Christ. You know, it is a tremendous relief to be about one great thing. Beneath all the other things you're about, to say like the psalmist, one thing I desire, one thing I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and behold his beauty, gaze upon his beauty all the days of my life. Paul could press on because every obstacle he saw was an opportunity to run towards Jesus. If you're going to press on, you need grit. You need a little bit of grit, at least. You need a compelling goal. Third, you need a few good guides. This is picking up at verse 17. Paul says, brothers, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me 
And keep your eyes, this is where I'm getting guides. Notice they're being told to look at people. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. You you see, um, what Paul's saying here is that it's not enough, Philippians, for me just to have left you with information. You need to see Christianity embodied in order to do it. You see, Christianity, it's not like a bunch of information you can memorize, like, like memorizing an anatomy textbook in medical school. It's a craft. It's the person that's memorized her anatomy textbook, but then goes to her residency and realizes there's a lot to learn about actually doing surgery on a living human being. And it takes years to imitate the senior surgeon. This is what Paul is saying. To learn Christianity, you have to see it embodied. You know, I've been watching um, the, the wonderful series Band of Brothers. I think I referred to it a few weeks ago. It follows Easy Company as they have their tour in World War II in Europe. And um, they're there about two years, I think. And one of the things that happens is, is there's casualties during the fighting and the men get extremely beat up. And so periodically, one of the things that happens is replacements are brought in. Replacements are soldiers who typically have seen no combat yet. And it's almost an embarrassment when they show up without a, without a blemish on their face next to these war-torn, now veterans of Easy Company. And there's something interesting that unfolds when you watch this, is that some of the replacements actually come in with more training and a higher pedigree than members of Easy Company. They've gone to West Point, perhaps. You see, Easy Company, these guys were volunteering. Many of them were just farmers. But the replacements come in, and even if they have more training and higher rank, they have no idea how to be a soldier. They don't know what it's like to reload ammo when there's real bullets coming at you. They don't know what it's like emotionally to bear up when your best friend just died. So they need the veterans of Easy Company. They need to see them embody both in terms of the emotional pattern of a soldier and the practical techniques of survival. They need to see that embodied and then closely imitate them. That's how Christianity works. You can read in your Bible that Christians rejoice in sorrow and have absolutely no idea how to do that. But there's people in this room that sure do. You you can read that you're supposed to bear up in temptation, flee things like lust, and have absolutely no idea how to do that. Friends, this is why God, when he saves us, places us into a church. Because he needs us, he knows we need to be in a place where we will be inspired and have examples of Christians who have learned the craft. I mean, do you know that happiness is a craft you learn, not a chemical that happens to you? Do you know you can learn to be grateful? You can cultivate that skill. And many of the Christians who are the happiest have suffered the most. But you won't know that if you're not keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the pattern. And Paul, in verse 18 and 19, he gives us a very cautionary note. He goes on, after saying, watch the winners, he goes on to say, and don't look at the losers. Verse 18 and 19, he says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame 
with minds set on earthly things. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. You see, the point he's making is that by nature you are an imitator. If you're a human being, you're impressionable. Just think of your style right now. Why aren't you dressing like it's the 70s? Because you're original? No, because you copy everybody. We all do that. And if you think you're being original, it's only because you're reacting to what the norm is. The point is we are imitators by nature. You will imitate someone. That's how babies learn to talk and smile and walk, imitation. So who are you imitating? Who occupies that space in your mind that calls forth your heart, that shows you how to live, how to pray, how to walk, how to endure? You know, when I look around our church, you know, I've been here four and a half years now as, as the rector, um, so I'm getting to know you well. When, when I look around our church, I know that collectively, we've pretty much seen it all. I mean, the experiences in this room are unbelievable, and many unbelievably hard. And so when I'm looking around on Sunday, I know some of the things some of you have gone through and are going through, and I'm thinking, she's pressing on. He's pressing on. How do you do the Christian life? Well, I know one thing, you keep showing up. I met with um, a woman two weeks ago. I've seen her around. I never met with her before. And I came to learn that she had first started coming to our church in 1979. She'd been a member for 43 years, longer than I've been alive. Think of all she's seen, her and her husband. The church building buildings, losing buildings, looking for buildings, building buildings, (laughs) saying saying goodbye to a 40-year pastor, the only pastor she knew, bearing up with a green new pastor as he learns the ropes, and just steady, just showing up, just serving. I am so thankful as a youngish man that I have examples like you around me. Many of you, many of you are tremendously brave, and it is an honor to be in your midst. Okay, we've said three things. I have one more point I'm going to finish with, and it's the most important point. What have we said so far? We need to press on. How do we do it? A little bit of grit, a compelling goal, Christ before us, a few good guides, comrades to show you the way. There's a fourth thing that we have to look at. And that has to do with our guarantor, another G. Um, you know, you can get to this point in a sermon like this, and without realizing it, you can think, you can feel as though a lot of weight has put, put on your shoulders, right? And I mean, there is, you do have to press on. I mean, you do have to endure. But you can feel like at the end of the day, but I feel too weak. And I have in my, my pocket here a, a congregational report, a care report. I get these. I'm not going to read any names. It's anonymous. But I was thinking of this this morning and what it would feel like to be one of these people being told to press on. So there's things here. This is just stuff going on right now. Surgery for cancerous tumors. A second miscarriage. Complicated surgery afterwards. Somebody fell and broke several ribs and hit their head. One person had heart surgery that was triggered by pneumonia. Mental health struggles, a pregnancy going on that is so complicated and painful, it would break your heart. And that's not to mention all the relational things going on. 
So how do we press on when the burdens get overwhelming and you feel like you can't put one foot in front of the other? And this brings us to what I think is the most important phrase, at least for me, in the passage. It's back up in verse 12. It's a phrase at the very end of the verse. Let me read it for us. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul understood something that I pray we do as well. When Christ calls you, he also claims you. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus says in John 6, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. When Christ calls you, he sustains you. Paul says to the Corinthians, we await the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain us to the end. When Christ calls you, he commits as your high priest to without ceasing be in prayer for you. Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Paul had grit, he had a goal, he had guides, but he ultimately had his guarantor, Christ, who has made me his own. Friends, the Christian life, it's as though we're called to swim a race through a great river. And we jump in and we have to swim with all our might. And we do. But when we get to the shore, we realize that what happened was we jumped into a great current, far stronger than us, a current of God's love and power. And that current, no matter how we swam, was ultimately going to see us through, to carry us to the celestial shore. So press on, Christian soldiers, and never give in, not finally, not fully, not to sin, not to fear, not to despair. Never give in, because your Lord will never give up on you. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would endure till our death or till your return by your power working in us. Amen.